Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that explains how to take a passion coupled with competence and turn it into a way of life. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. John Gruber is either the world's biggest Apple fanboy or the most nuanced explicator of Cupertino's smoke signals, depending on whom you ask and on what day you ask them. In a more objective reality, John's daring fireball site is the place you go to if you want to have a bigger picture understanding of the universe in which Apple is firmly in the center. John's writings have been quoted by Steve Jobs, his insights infuriate partisans of other platforms, and yet he remains typically above the fray. You can hear him weekly on The Talk Show, another fine Mule Radio Syndicate podcast, and he joins us today. Welcome to the podcast, John. Uh, thanks for having me, Glenn. Glad to have you. So uh, good how's to, this blogging? Good, good, good to be here. <laughs> how's this blogging thing working out anyway? Seems like, uh, I don't know, is this a job for a grown man? Doesn't sound like it, and I've always been always, and I, I've sort of warmed to it over the years. But I've always been reluctant to use that word. I stuck with weblog well past when everybody else had sort of uh, switched to blogging. Well, it's a funny run of things too, because weren't we told by I'm not sure which powers that be more than a decade ago that blogging was going to be the great uh, independent liberalizing leveling force that would allow everything with something to say to get an audience. But I don't think it turned out quite that way. Well, my insight, and and I really like this. I feel like this is one of the best little one-liners I've ever come up with, although I think I'm probably <laughs> going to misquote myself. But to me, the key thing to keep in mind is that blog is a noun. It's a format. It's a, it's a medium of distribution. The verb is the same as it's ever been. The verb is writing. I'm a writer who writes a blog. I'm not a blogger. To me, there's an enormous difference there where when somebody calls somebody else a blogger, sometimes they do it with just because they're just tossing it loosely. But I think when it's somebody who's writing for a established print publication, they're doing it to sort of uh, diminutize. I just made that word up, but to, uh, you know, put, put you in a little cage that you're in the... Uh, you're over there at the kids' table. I agree. I think blogging was used by mainstream publications and people who are especially like staff writers on magazines and newspapers, of which it's seemingly a fraction remain now, to disparage a kind of writing that was uh, less formal than what they were spending their careers doing and thus less important because it was, um, it was looser. And, you know, I think looking at what The Economist did was fascinating because they embraced blogging, uh, late as a publication and they had to think about it a lot because their writing is, there's no bylines in the print publication. They have a joint voice and there are named columnists. And so as they introduced blogs to the site, they thought very hard about the idea of letting writers have or express individual voices, and in the end, put initials on most of the blog entries so that people could have at least a sense of differentiation among the voices. But they never disparaged it. They said, we're going to do it when we feel we can let our correspondents, both uh, staff and freelance like myself, have a place to put it where it's contextually sensible. And now they have, I think, like 50 blogs. And it is truly, it's a great example, because to me, it truly is written up to the same extraordinarily high standards of writing as the print publication. Everything's and, edited that goes on the blog. I mean, there's a few and, people who are high-end who write and post, but those are the columnists and the rest of us. It goes through the same sort of editing process, which requires a lot of time and, and staff money to do. I will draw a distinction even and say that it's in contrast slightly to The New Yorker, who I think has a significantly lower standard of quality for their online-only writing. Uh, now, it might be that I'm biased because I'm actually like halfway through a piece for Daring Fireball looking at an online-only New Yorker thing about Apple from last week that mm -hmm. I think is 
truly dreadful. Just poor, not only just poorly written, but truly poorly thought through. So maybe I'm biased by that one piece. But, but know, I've never noticed that with the the Economist. The, In fact, I often don't know when I when somebody points me to the Economist, I have to think about it whether this was online only or whether this is something from the magazine. Well, you know, I have a piece that I'm meaning to write for the magazine that I haven't yet, and I think you are like the perfect example of is for me the difference between say blogging and writing and i mean i don't even mean to disparage it but the idea of posting short snippets of things sometimes your thoughts sometimes um quotes from other with annotation like things that are meant to be quickly consumed the difference between that and the kind of writing that you the most of us aspire to who are writers the stuff that used to appear in print and now appears frequently online the difference is editing and some of us are very good self-editors. I'm going to argue that I am not as good a self-editor as as you are by far, but as a lot of people are. I love having editors in the process. And I have a piece I'm going to write for the magazine in which I write about this issue, and then I hire uh, several editors to edit it. And then we will post all the different versions of it, plus my final synthesized piece that will go through a copy editor and proofreader to show how someone like me who is, you know, I'm a veteran writer, worked in the field a long time, how ideas evolve and complete. And I think you have a great gift of writing things that sound as if they were edited because of the care you put in your long entries. Yeah, that is probably true. And I, I probably am better suited than some to do that. And, you know, I think because I think some writers the way that they I don't know, I mean, everybody's a little different, but I think some people really kind of not dash off, not carelessly, but but sort of rush through to get it all out that they know that they're on something they've got they've got the juice flowing so they get you know get through to the end while the juice is flowing and you've got you're on the vibe you've got it and then you're done and then get rid of it because now you're sort of repulsed by it. <laughs> yeah, you got to get it up there. Well, there was also that tendency that blogging was something fast. It was like we're beat writers and we're going to get this, you know, beat both like poetry and beat like we have a beat we're following and we're going to get it out there. When you started with Daring Fireball, it was a little bit of a different animal, but it wasn't that different. You were always writing longer pieces, as I recall, that had that del deliberation. You were never like trying to get 100 items up a day. No. In fact, for the first two years or so of the site, all there were were the longer articles. Like the, the format of my site now is that there's two types of posts that go up. Short ones that link fundamentally start by linking somewhere else. And then I add my own little commentary or a pull quote, uh, hopefully just to entice the reader to go. You know, here's what I, here's a little nugget that's interesting about this piece that I really think is worth your attention. Go there. And I do a lot of those. That's, you know, by, by quantity, that's certainly most of what I do. And then longer articles, like what I consider sort of a, a, a column, you know, but sometimes branching out longer than a column length into essay length. But the first two years of the site was just the column, just the maybe one or two times a week, an essay or column length piece. And when you were doing that, you still had a day job, right? So you were, you were working you were bare bones at that point. You were working a day job while you were producing uh, irregularly produced essays. No, it's at, at the, I, I had the idea for Daring Fireball, I guess, while I was still at bare bones, but it pretty much started once I left bare bones that, and I, it, it was because at the time blogging was so new. Uh, and there I am using it as a verb. <laughs> blogs were so new that. It was 
tricky because, you know, and I still think it might have been. It might have been tricky for me to write what Daring Fireball is while being in the employ of a major Mac software company. Yeah. You know, it's uh, how could I be, you know, honest about well, so, you know, honest about just bare bones stuff it alone was would be fine because I could just, you know, put a big qualifier up. And in fact, for the first few years of the site, I did usually uh, or at least regularly remind readers that, hey, I used to work with these guys and I'm really good friends with mm-hmm. them. And so, you know, to take that take anything I say about BB Edit and Yojimbo, et cetera, with a grain of salt. But uh, it was more about, though, how could I talk about other companies or specifically really here's a big one is how can I really lay into Apple? If I'm working for a company that has, you know, the infamously delicate political, you know, third party developers and their relationships with Apple is it's it's a political dance. Yeah, it always has been. And and 10 years ago was no different than today. So, you you know, it would be difficult if in a nine, you know, eight, nine person company, however big bare bones, you know, to have one of the better known employees, you know, lambasting Apple for the slowness of macOS 10.1 or something like that. So you had left bare bones. You know, I don't know if I, I thought I knew this part of the story. This is 2000 and two and you left and you were, were you contracting before because during fireball, it didn't come out of nowhere, but and people knew you in the Mac world. I mean, you had, you were reputation because of being involved with BB edit. People knew you from conferences. It wasn't, um, no, no conferences. I'd never, did you never, but you'd before. attended conferences though. No, I don't think so. Is that right? I, it's funny. Yeah. So how did that's, uh, that's I think you, you I destroyed think, my worldview of you, John. No, I, I thought you were a well-known commodity by then. People knew who you were. Was it all through online communication? I think it's almost entirely online. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, I shouldn't say I was never at conferences. I mean, I was at Macworld with Bare Bones. I mean, so I certainly met some people face-to-face, you know, just manning the booth. Uh, probably tidbits talk, really. Oh, that's I, funny. I, that's I funny. never actually – I've I, you know, who know, never say never going forward, but I've never been a contributor to tidbits itself. Mm-hmm. But I was at the time a very active member of the excellent tidbits talk uh, – discussion group. Oh, yeah. I should mention that because, I mean, it's, it's so funny 10 years later or more, we still run it. But back, uh, there was a time when discussion forums were sort of a mess. They still are messes. And we just were running a mailing list. And it was incredibly active. There were hundreds and hundreds of people on it in the Mac community where there was sometimes no other place to get an answer. There were developer lists that were separate and developer sites and Macworld magazine for sort of the consumer issues. But we still have, uh, I think, a few hundred people who talk on that list, um, that community is persistent, even as it really has very little to do with uh, tidbits coverage proper. Uh, but so you, but you were known. The thing I, I'm trying to, I'm sort of digging here is, is you went from someone who was a, a programmer who clearly had written for a long time. Your writing reflects that you'd always written to, to some extent to someone with the site that people had to go read every day. I'm curious how you got through that transition because it, you know even if it was a plan it still happened how did you go from programmer to the guy who runs staring fireball i don't know just by doing it i guess i mean you know <laughs> did you just start I, one day did you post things and people were like oh hey john ruber's writing something and then suddenly the traffic starts to go to tens hundreds of thousands is, millions it, of page views it is it was very difficult for, i mean it absolutely was the 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 hardest thing was how to start it you know the first post mm-hmm. uh and in fact, uh, I think the first post was, you know, and I'd spend a, a significant number of hours, weeks, let's say, uh, twiddling the look of the site, the original look. Um, you know, what's the colors going to be? What are the fonts going to be? Because honestly, I, I, my degree is in programming, but I really spent most of the 90s 
uh, doing more design work than programming work. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, building websites for people is, you know, is a great, great thing for me because it's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. It's being a programmer, having a computer science degree, knowing my way around a Unix command line, uh, is a great skill to have in addition to knowing how to make things look somewhat good. Yeah, I was on the other side of that. I was I have a degree in graphic design and learned how to program right. uh, as a kid, and then again when the web came out. And yeah, it's it's right. It's a wonderful blending of those skills, and still can be even with right. parts really being abstracted. Is. Yeah, right. And the web is you know, and and stuff like a the Apache web server is really you know, you it's from a Mac user's perspective, it's not really that great, but it's still it's relatively <laughs> yeah. simple. The the concept behind how you how you go from typing text to making it show up in a web browser styled is actually pretty easy to understand for someone who's not that deep technically. It's a lot easier conceptually to get it all in your head and understand it than say app programming for Android or iOS or something. Yeah, there's like less that. abstraction you need. The web right. is so direct and it's interactive. As you're writing HTML or modifying cascading style sheets, you can have I mean now you have programs that are fully interactive, but even in two even ten or fifteen years ago, there are programs as you typed, you could see changes or hit a reload button. So you had instant feedback. When you messed it up, you knew you left off a closing tag or a software right. warn you. Right. And there's very you go one level of abstraction into real programming, even JavaScript, and suddenly you have to do it all in your head first. You can't be working interactively on the screen. Right. And we're, I'll, I will answer your question. I haven't forgotten. No, no, the, I think the digression is good, though, is that there is there, the Mac, you know, in the 80s introduced this sort of model of how do you manipulate, how do you change your, your system, the, the operating system? And instead of configuring it through some sort of syntax in the programming, you just put stuff in special magic folders, right? If you wanted to add a new extension, you just put it in the extensions folder. Mm -hmm. And if you wanted to disable it, you'd take it out and restart the machine. And how do you add a plugin to Photoshop? You put the plugin file in the Photoshop plugins folder. And then if you don't like it anymore or it's buggy or, you know, whatever, you, how do you take it out? You take it out and restart Photoshop. Well, Apache worked the same way with websites. How do you put an HTML file up? Here's your magic folder. The, everything in here is, is your website. Put the HTML file here. There it is. It shows up. I have never a, thought about it that way. You're totally right. right. And, you know, uh, like I said, I have a degree in computer science. So, I mean, it's not like I can't program, but... It, the complexity of that and the greater abstraction of putting files through a compiler and spitting out binary code, it, it aggravates me. It, it's not that I don't understand it, but that it agitates me. Well, you know, I've uh, always had this notion that I, I may have talked about in a previous podcast. I'm already repeating myself, episode, whatever we're at now. But the, I have this idea that um, this has something to do with the mirror neuron theory, that we're modeling people. You, t you meet people, and the more you get to know someone, the more you model their behavior in your head. Oh, this is a theory. It's not – I don't think it's being – Proved a little bit by functional MRIs, but you're you're modeling in your head what that person will do, and we only have room for a certain number of people profiles in our brains. That's that like monkey to human thing. Like there's some hundreds of people that we can sort of keep track of, and I I think it has to do with that modeling. I've often thought that programmers, uh, and I feel this sometimes when I program, that I'm I have a virtual machine in my head. I have a Perl engine in my head, and when I'm writing code, I'm executing it in my head in my virtual machine, and that's this strange kind of abstraction, but it's also very concrete. I'm trying to emulate what's going on. HTML is a different beast, and I think design, too, is you're picturing an aesthetic result, and you're trying to get closer and closer to it. And a lot of people work at it that you're you're either building up a sculpture by, you know, adding clay to it, or you're carving away the marble, but you've got an end result you're trying to reach that's an aesthetic result. Hmm. 
I, I, it, it feels the same way in my head. Mm. So I, this actually That's is tying, tying together with your original question. So go back to college and I'm studying, um, you know, my, again, I was pursuing a degree in uh, computer science at Drexel university. Um, but I was also uh, a columnist and then the ed op editor and then the editor in chief eventually of the college newspaper. Um, and that's really what I was interested in. That's what I enjoyed doing. I enjoyed writing my weekly column for the newspaper and laying it out and making it look good and redesigning the paper to look professional and learning Quark Express and and that sort of stuff. And I really enjoyed that. And I enjoyed the weekly schedule. I enjoyed you know seeing my name in print. Uh, and it was very much to the detriment of my studies. I mean, I, I did okay, but I certainly would have done far better if I'd had more time. The newspaper came first and my, my coursework came second. And what I remember one time is I remember a course called Systems Architecture. And it was a computer science course. And it was, it was um, fun, you know, basically it was an entire semester of 68K assembler. Mm -hmm. You had to do assembly programming which is really low-level programming. I mean, this is about as low as anybody reasonably would go in the real world. Like, beneath the level of C programming, um, you're actually, like, talking directly to the CPU. And I really did pour... It was an enormous struggle for me. Uh, and I guess I was up late. I, I got home late because I was at the paper and then had to do this this really, you know, work on this, for me, extremely difficult assembly program. And then next thing I know is my alarm is going off. My, my alarm clock is going off the next morning. And I, you know, it was a really annoying, that, that classic 80s, 90s alarm clock. I'm not even going to emulate it here because it's so traumatic. But it, just think of the most <laughs> traumatic alarm sound you can have. And it was going off and off and off and off. And I'm a notorious snoozer. Oh, but the snoozer hits the button and goes... And my roommates actually came in. I had a, a big apartment, and a couple of my roommates came in, and they're like, Gruber, shut that thing the hell off. Shut it off. And and the problem was I'd woken up convinced that I needed to, sh to shut the alarm off. I needed to do it in assembly program. <laughs> and I had literally spent oh sat there for like, th like three, four minutes in a haze, like rubbing my head, trying to figure out how – what do I have to do? I have to move the memory to the register – and then how do you get that thing from the register to the command, the subroutine that shuts the thing? I, I, and I mean, for minutes. And then I, and it was really a moment where I thought, you know what? I'm not going to be a programmer. Yeah, yeah. Because the programming rewrites your brain. Right. And and it just, you know, it, it didn't fit. Some people so are, I wanted to be a writer. Some people That's, have that you know, mentality. I mean, obviously you can program. I do some programming too. And I, I've built... So I have some systems right now that have tens of thousands of lines of code in them, and I'm not a natural programmer. And some of my software works well and some not as well, but I can't get into that abstraction all the time. I can't get myself back into the head and just be inside the machine in my head all the time. That's not how I want to work, and it's that same thing. You, what you describe is almost like a video game hangover, right? You're still chasing the ghosts. You're eating dots and chasing the ghosts. You can see it in front of yeah. your vision exactly. even though you played the game last night. All right. And, you know, it, it was, yeah, exactly. It's, you know, if you play that, if you play a video game until you fall asleep too, you know, same type thing. But it was really, it just bothered oh, that's me. That's terrifying. So what I wanted to be was a writer or a creator of some sort, making things, you know, movies or something like that, doing something creative. But I, temperamentally, I am completely ill-suited to working for other people. So like I had no <laughs> desire whatsoever to get a job at an actual newspaper mm -hmm. or the magazine or something like that and work my way up any sort of ladder. 
So I didn't. I just instead just futzed around, built, you know, doing you know contract work, design work, building websites, stuff like that for people as a freelancer. And that took you to bare bones at some point. You were at bare bones for for a bit though, right? Yeah, like two years. Yeah, and they make. I mean, for those who don't know, I'll put in the show notes. But bare bones makes BB Edit, which is preeminent developer tool for programming, but I also, I've used it for writing for years. I wrote a book about BB Edit, Take Control of BB Edit, which is, has a lot in there for how to use it for writing, which I do and a lot of other Mac people I know use. And so it's not that weird that you'd be working on a product or for a company that's flagship product had to do with oriented towards manipulating symbols and managing libraries, uh, in text that it was also a program that could be used just as that blank screen, empty page, you could write, you could write HTML in it, you could post that HTML directly to a website. You know, it's funny, I'll tell you what's funny, is when I left Bare Bones, I had this, uh, you know, well, what can I do now to make to make a career? What, what are my options? And I, you know, started listing things. And one of them was, well, I should write a book about BB Edit, <laughs> right? And I, you know, I'd certainly contributed a lot to the manual, but I thought, you know, there's never been a good BB Edit book. And it was true. No offense to the people who've tried before, but yeah, there'd yeah. never been a good one. And we'd always talked about it at Bare Bones. And I sort of had an idea of how to write a good one. And I thought, well, there, you know, and I know famously, you, you, you know, writing technical books, even ones that are successful, is not a great way to make a lot of money. I mean, everybody sort of knows that. But at least it would make, you know, it was something, you <laughs> there, know, that I could. There's three people who've done that. No, maybe 10, but yeah. Uh, Thousands who have not. Right. But maybe at least enough to, you know, to keep my head above water. But it was one of those things that never came off my to-do list. It just was, you know, even, I don't even know if it's written down somewhere, but you know, there's that idea of things you might want to do in life. And that one got added in 2002 or 2001, even, even before I left, I had the idea that maybe I could do that. And it never came off until your BB edit book came off. And I thought, well, there it is. There's the good BB edit book. And I actually was happy about it because Really, it wasn't so much anymore that I wanted to write a BB Edit book. It was that it still bothered me that no one had written a good BB Edit book. It's a big beast. It's a it's a great you know BB Edit. I think Bare Bones as a company is reflective of like there's the that um like Stanley Kubrick who you love so much. Uh, I have this theory by the way. I have a theory you started Derek Fireball to have a forum to write about Stanley Kubrick, much the way that. Jeff Bezos started Amazon to have the money to afford to do private space flight. That's no. well, what was Moltz's, Moltz's joke. I think back in the cars days was that the name of the site should be Stanley Yan- Yankees ball. Stanley, it's not too far off, but well, so I'm sorry. The auteur, you know, the auteur theory it's, that's always cited around Kubrick is, uh, I think it's something we talk about in this podcast a lot too, and comes up with what you're doing and with bare bones is many hands spoil the, you know, spoil the soup and a lot of great software and a lot of great blogs, a lot of great, uh, publications have a strong, clear, center point often one person or a very small group of people who interconnect they don't go and meet by committee they each have strengths and they may go get together and fight about what they do but at the end they reach a consensus that is better than um it's not like hey let's vote who has a majority they come out with a synthesis of what they should do and i think um bare bones has had i mean i know rich siegel has been at the helm for so long but they've had a a great track record of just continually improving that product without really worrying too much about what other people think about it. <laughs> right. No, it's just, it's a, I was, I will say a singular vision, but he and Patrick Woolsey, his longtime, you know, um, partner, lesser mm-hmm. known of the two. Yes. Um, but you know, Patrick is certainly hugely influential on the product, you know, but they're, they're, 
you know, maybe more like a Coen Brothers type situation. Yeah, where- they don't agree on everything, but they certainly they move it forward. And you're, I mean, years ago, I was incredibly lucky, and I did this summer design program for a few weeks in Basel, Switzerland. That was uh, when I was at Yale. It was a summer program Yale ran, and um, I was poor. I got a scholarship. They were awesome to me, and I went over to Switzerland. And one of the people we studied with for a week was Richard Sapper, who invented the Tizio lamp. I will put this in the show notes. A great industrial designer, uh, still designing products. And uh, we're there one day, and this guy shows up. This very handsome man driving a very fancy car. We're in the south of Switzerland. And, and um, Mr. Sapper says, I'll be going off for Herr Sapper. I'm going off for a little bit with uh, with this fellow. Like, Who is that? Like, That's, you know, um, what's the company? It's uh, uh, Alessi. That was Mr. Alessi. Shows up. I'm like, oh, <laughs> the current Mr. Alessi in charge of the company. And it was fascinating to take that class and then you look at Alessi products is that they did not compromise on a vision of what would work. They did the thing they knew would work. And Alessi is a precursor like Bose and some other companies of Apple's vision. And I remember we asked Mr. Sapper when he came back, um, you know, what, would you work for American companies and Italian and German? What do you like? He says, I love working for the European companies because they do not have a, you know, goddamn committee. Like I tell them, I bring my designs. We might have strong discussions. A decision is made. It isn't advanced. And I've kept that lesson with me since. And I think that's what we hear all the time. Michael Lopp at, um, I'll post a link to his talk at the Singleton Du conference, uh, back in October. He talked about that. Someone has to be a dictator in the room. Now I'm getting a far afield because you're your own dictator, right? You run your own site, but you right. were coming out of this environment, coming out of bare bones and watching strong collaboration. You're working in an environment in which, uh, software is developed where there's a lot of, in the Mac, where a lot of single person or very small team software that was very influential in those days. Um, you know, even some of Adobe's products started as single ideas, the Knowles brothers, the, um, uh, real time, which became, uh, God knows what it's called, After Effects and so forth. There's a lot of singular vision coming from that environment. Did that affect how you got into moving yourself from programming into writing, or is that not even, I mean, was that any part of the thinking seeing that sort of um, software as a means of personal expression or means of authorship? Oh, I suppose so. It's probably what drew me to, to BB edit. And I mean, I still use BB edit every day um, and to work at bare bones, you know, that it's, it, it that there's a, a strong, Again, yeah, just a strong, distinctive vision and not, you know, something that is not of the moment. You know, it's not just when it came out in 1992, here's what's hip in Mac apps in 1992. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a reason that an app that came out in 1992, I think today you could, you know, show somebody the current version of BB Edit and boy, there's a lot more in it. But, you know, they'd feel familiar. They'd be like, yeah, this is this, you know, you could tell that the same people were still making it. Macworld did that interesting thing where they looked at software they'd been kicking around for, I think, was it 20 years or so? They yeah. did a whole series of articles, and it was fascinating to see what how, what the transitions were and how much – and a lot of those programs were, you know, singular visions initially, and even with huge teams like Photoshop or something, how much of the core functionality, the reason it came into existence is still the core of why people use it two decades later. Right. You know, and software is weird like that, though, because – it is the one, and it, to me, it is an art form. But it is the one thing that is continuously diddled with, right? I mean, you write a novel and and it's done. You know, it's out there. You know, you're done. You know, once it's published, it's published. When you make a movie, it's done. You know, and George Lucas, you know, gets a lot of flack because he keeps revisiting his old Star Wars movies and making a change here and there. 
but it's not like every year he comes out with a new version of Star Wars. You know, he did it like once in the late 90s and came out with these alternate versions. And even that was considered extremely unusual, right? But software, an app that has a, a, a vibrant and still growing user base, it's the same thing constantly being iterated. It's the only art form that's like that. And it's to me, it, it does make it very interesting. That's fascinating. And that's a, that's a great insight, right? Because most, most art is static or unless it's specifically designed not to. There's a great story about the um, abstract expressionist uh, Franz uh, Klein. He would go to his patrons' houses and he would look at a painting and he'd pull out his brushes and start working on it again. And they'd say, no, no, we bought it like this. Stop working. Stop cutting black against white, Klein. But most cases you don't do that. All right. So let's, I'm, I, we keep circling around this. I'm going to get to, I want to get to this point here. So there's a point at which you've got the design done of Daring Fireball. You've come out of bare bones. You've got people know you in the development and Matt community. You write the first post and you post, the, you, you make the site live. Who read that? Who was the, who are the early readers? I don't know. And, you know, I, I don't remember exactly what I did, but I remember being extremely uncomfortable. You know, to me, the the best analogy I can come up with is however much anxiety most people feel in public speaking. It's for me, and I, 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 you know, I do it, and I think I do okay, but and I do feel a lot of pressure about it. But to me, it's a lot easier to speak in front of a packed room than to speak in front of an empty room, mm. right? Because at least that's what's supposed to be there. So to me, the putting up the first few posts of Daring Fireball, thinking that maybe you know, there's only like ten hits a day or something like that. To me, it felt like giving a speech in a big empty room and it's to me it's like why why even bother and you know it's it was like a, a constant flop sweat it, it felt off and then i you know and of course the other on the back of your mind is what if it stays like this right and i don't know i do not know what the what happens to go from that to even just say a hundred regular readers a day, which at one point, you know, early on was what it, what it was, you know, mm -hmm. but that was a huge relief. Like when I had, like, when I'd check my stats, uh, and see that there were a few hundred distinct IP addresses hitting the site, boy, that was just an enormous, enormous weight off my shoulders. Like, wow, at least, you know, somebody's caught on. So I think what I did was, and I, I know every once in a, I don't think I did a lot of it, but every once in a while I would, if it was about the topic of the day on somebody else's site, maybe in the comments of their site, I would, if I had written something on the same subject, maybe I posted a comment about it or maybe a few other public places. I don't know if I ever posted the tidbits talk on it with a pointer or two, uh, uh, very, very politely, not like out of the blue and, and say, hey, I have a new site, go read it. But if it was, if it seemed germane to what was being discussed at the moment, post a link here or there. Let's take a break to thank a sponsor. Kiwi is a full-featured app.net client in a super simple package built just for Mac OS X. Kiwi packs in all the best features of app.net, like private messages and inline images, into a clean, simple, and easy-to-use app. Keep your Twitter friends in the loop with Twitter cross-posting. And a unified timeline option lets you choose to see all your mentions and followers in a single view. Download the app at kiwi-app.net. You'll find a link on the episode page, too. Thank you, Kiwi. Now, back to the interview. I try to remember sometimes. I feel like I have amnesia about it because it feels sometimes like social networks always existed. And I'm, I'm thinking, how did I find things then? I went more to sites. I mean, and there were – 2002, there were by then actually a bunch of good technology blogs. I'd started my Wi-Fi blog in 2001, 
yeah, 2001 and had the same expectation. Like I was excited when anybody came or commented and then it, it steamrolled a bit because of everyone's interest in Wi-Fi and the lack of information on it. But I, I have that remembrance of like, how do I tell people about this? There was, you know, Google had just started. You could take out, you couldn't, right? You weren't keyword ads. You had to get juice in the search engine. So people searched on a topic they could find yeah, you. Yeah, there would be no reason with a new day, even with Google already. Google did exist at the time. They didn't have, uh, they didn't have keyword ads in 2002. Well, did or it, just, or yeah, you I, I didn't have, yeah, I didn't, have I don't even know what right. right. I don't know if that would have worked either. I don't think, I don't even think, even no matter how accurate their keyword ads are, I don't think it would have helped Daring Fireball find right. the what right Right, you, you would have been looking for the word Apple or what, I mean, you know, that's, I've yeah. always had that and trouble with like Wi-Fi as I tried it and it's, their subjects are so huge, but you need to have people referring other people to you rather than trying to advertise for readers. I also suspect that the core Daring Fireball audience is technically savvy enough that they probably very seldom click the ad sponsored results in Google. And I was talking on a recent podcast about the, when Google started up and all of a sudden everybody I knew, you tell me if you had the same phenomenon, everyone I knew uh, suddenly started using Google instead of AltaVista. It was like yeah. a matter of weeks or months. And, yeah. but it was all tech savvy people because we could tell the results were technically better, even if it wasn't as polished at that point. And I feel like that's what happened to Daring Fireball too, is that you started posting and, um, you know, this happened to Boing Boing as well. Boing Boing predates you by not that much as a blog. I think it's, I want to say it might even be 2000 or 1999 that they started to really start of post regularly and it's fun it's funny though because i tend to think that boing boing is way older than daring fireball mm -hmm. but now at this point no probably that's not. right yeah. it was well it's it was like, a zine beforehand and they had a site and they started to post and if i remember their history correctly uh i talked to mark faunfelder for the podcast a few weeks ago and uh he got cory doctorow to help him during some uh, time he was going away for a bit and Corey started posting like mad and Mark's like, Hey, if we post like mad on cool stuff that people can't easily find, then huh. And then that's, that was sort of became what it is today and remains that. But yeah, I mean, I started 2001, you started 2002, boing, boing. I want to say it might've been 2000, but there's a, there were times where it's like, Hey, I'm going to link to something John Gruber wrote and I might actually be sending you more traffic than you sent me for a very brief window back right. in the wifi heyday. Oh, absolutely. But it was very funny. And it's, and you know, Wi-Fi as a topic, it stopped being interesting to people because it was solved. You know, there stopped being people could just buy hardware and it worked and community Wi-Fi sort of developed and the wide scale Metro Wi-Fi disappeared. So it became oxygen. It disappeared. But during Fireball, over this same period of time, what you've chosen to write about, these are perennial topics. Even if you're writing about something that's very specific, it seems like you had a tone even at the start that you've kept to this day about the sort of subjects that you're interested in that you want to write about? Well, I, I, I hope so. I mean, I think part of it is that I, I have a voice to my writing and I do think to me, it's very hard for me to judge that though, especially the recent, you know, the more recent stuff. I can look back at the old stuff and sort of read it objectively, but stuff that I've written even within the last year or two, it's too fresh in my head to really hear it objectively. Uh, you know, in that, in that mind's ear when you read. Well, you wrote um, a little more, I mean, certainly wrote more technical things uh, further back in time. You write more things that were related to right. programming. You still, you still pull those out from time to time when they're useful for a broad audience and you're not seeing it written about, you'll summarize and tell people how you did something where it's useful, but you're, but that was maybe more common earlier on. 
Yeah, definitely. It was more nerdy then. Uh, and I don't know, you know, I don't even know that it, I've deliberately avoided that. It's just way my, what I'm thinking about has changed, I think. Right. Is where you're spending, yeah, if you're spending less time programming and messing around with things, you're not going to be writing about programming and messing around with things because you're not, it's not what you're doing. I'm, I'm looking for an article here. Let's see if this is it. Yeah. So the first one that really got big, I started the site in August 2002. And I, boy, I wrote a lot of articles back because I didn't have that <laughs> link list. So it looks like I wrote so many more articles. Oh, yeah. Each is an did. item, right? Each is an item. Right. But, but some of them were just short. They were, you know, would have been link list entries today. But so I, you know, I had like 10 in August, another 10 in September. And then so maybe like 20, 25, 30 articles in to Daring Fireball. I had an article called Microsoft's. Answer to Ellen Fleiss. Ellen Feiss. Remember <laughs> Ellen Feiss? Yes, the uh, is those, um, the ads that had um, the switcher ads. Right. That, in fact, Mark Frauenfelder was in one of those randomly. He knew somebody and they picked him, they picked his story for it, strangely enough. Back when Boing Boing, no one knew what Boing Boing was. And there's Mark Frauenfelder against the white background being interviewed. Uh, but yeah, Ellen Weiss looked like she was uh, stoned. She was and, on cold medication. And well, and, and what happened is Microsoft ran a site, an article on Microsoft.com written by, and this was 2002, which is Apple was running that campaign, this switcher campaign. But it wasn't the one that actually worked. It was years before the one with the John Hodgman, I'm a Mac, you're a PC thing, which really did work. And it was a long time before the user, you know, the market share numbers really started twisting towards mm-hmm. the Mac. Um, Again, hard to remember what seemed, that was like, but right, Apple was the underdog. It seemed, though, as though those ads got under Microsoft's skin. And they ran an article on Microsoft.com from some – ostensibly by some woman who said, you know – purportedly in you know in her own voice that she submitted this article that that she switched the other way she was a longtime mac user and now she switched to windows and it just didn't ring true it seemed real phony and and i wrote about it and then the next day uh i don't remember the details here but the next article i wrote though was this one microsoft makeup Mm -hmm. and the gist of it was that um yeah, here it is. Well, this was this was sort of it was like this is almost breaking news or was breaking news. You had uh, yeah, illustrated what's going and, on, and there was a word document linked from the article, and you could download this doc word file, and if you opened it up, it's it's just one of those things that you know it's a, it's like a perennial story where word documents contain metadata that the people don't think is going to be in there. Oh, right. The name, their name on the computer they're on is stuck in an author field somewhere embedded in the document. You can just read with the right dialogue box. Right. And it ends up that the, uh, there was a template that Microsoft had given to, to submit these articles. And it ends up that the same person who wrote the template was the same person who ostensibly wrote the article. (laughs) And she worked for a PR firm that did work for Microsoft. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, it, it, long story short, I sort of, pre- and I called them up and got, uh, I got them to give me like a no comment. I actually like used the phone and pretty much got, you know, pretty much showed that the article was not just full of shit. It was, you know, paid here. Here's the thing I even have. I wrote down the, the transcript of the phone call. I called them up and it was a PR guy who never gave me his name and in an annoyed tone. Hello. And I said, hi, can I speak to Valerie Mallinson, please? And the PR guy said, there's nobody here by that name. People keep calling us about that, but there's nobody here by that name. And then he immediately hung up on me. Uh, this is Wes Radishk and Associates, mm-hmm. this PR firm. 
And I said, just be, I, wrote, I finished my article with just between you and me, Wes Radishuk and Associates doesn't exactly seem to be the world's best PR firm. <laughs> right? Because they're a PR firm, and that's how the guy answered the phone. I wrote my <laughs> with this really brusque, uh, I'm sick of talking about this, and, hung, and he hung up on me. Uh, well, this thing got picked up. That article that I wrote got picked up by Slashdot. Mm-hmm. And at the time, Slashdot was the the king of the hill in terms of throwing traffic at whatever. Oh they God! Remember to. when that's some again? This is things like I forget. It's like they because they could send hundreds of thousands or even millions of people your way because they would get picked up and then reporters would use Slashdot both in the technical press and the mainstream press. If they saw something interesting and unique on Slashdot, they'd pick it up as a tech story, and then suddenly you'd be on Reuters, AP, and what have you. Right. Uh, and my story, if you look at this, if you just, I think if you just Google Daring Fireball Microsoft makeup, you'll, you'll get the story. I, 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 looking at it now, it seems like I, I should have written another one that, that summarized it better. It's, it's meandering. It's, uh, but I, I was sort of in a rush. This is something where maybe an editor actually would help <laughs> me, but, but I didn't want to get beaten by it. I got so excited when I figured out this thing by opening up the document in BB Edit. I actually used to bring it full circle with BB Edit. I used BB Edit <laughs> to open the Word document to look at those little metadata things like who, who actually created the file and stuff like that. And when I made this connection that the same woman who supposedly wrote the article is also the one who created the template that the article was supposed to be submitted through uh, and that she works at this PR firm that's in the employee of Microsoft, I was so excited that uh you know I, I i don't know that i thought about the the format of it but anyway once that slash dot thing hit it was an enormous spike in traffic and then when it went back down and the spike was over it was it settled at a level that was significantly higher than where it was before yeah because you like had daily daily traffic went up because and, right, and people and found the, you people found you and they kept coming back i mean they're using at that point probably rss and and bookmarks to find you every day Right. If, you know, if 10, 20, 30,000 people came from Slashdot, if only 1,000 of them bothered to say, hey, this was pretty good, let me click another couple articles on the site and and got hooked. You know, at the time, even if just so, it, let's say 1,000 people did that and maybe two or 300 of them really thought, hey, this is something I might want to read every day, two or 300 regular readers was, you know, it, it was a significant slope increase on the traffic. Well, and I think this is again. It's one of these things that God. I feel like I, now. I feel like an old man. Like back in the back in those days, kids. It's uh, it was hard to get those kinds of spikes. They happened really irregularly. You'd get them from time to time, but you couldn't predict it, and you couldn't cause it to happen. And there now, I feel like like viral memes. Like a story comes out, and there could be ten million page views of it in a matter of hours because there's so many vectors. You know, like a virus, Twitter and Facebook and other methods of spreading information let any story that has the right angle to it suddenly explode at a level that I even though we thought stories were blowing up back then and you'd seen enormous amount of traffic, it's it's even smaller stories now get the benefit of viral acceleration because they can just be spread so easily. Well and I think the other unfortunate difference between now and then was now other sites have have evolved in a to me an unfortunate way which is that when they link to breaking news they do it in a way where they attempt to summarize the article in about a screenful of text say 3 400 words to summarize the article completely or as complete as they can in the scope of 400 or so words and then they only throw the link to the original at the end which to me the way that that works is if you read those sites and and lots and lots of sites link this way. I mean, the Huffington Post is entirely designed around this sort of thing is 
you know, it's not plagiarism. It's not uh, stealing per se, but they're, 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 they're hogging the attention. They're not telling their readers, go there and read it there. They're saying, here's a summary of the article. So you don't have to read that. Now we've sort of filled you in. And that wasn't, that didn't happen then. Like Slashdot doesn't work that way. Slashdot gives you a brief summary, but you really, they really do point you, they pointed you to the other site. I mean, that's the, that's the famous Slashdot effect where they'd knock servers over and, you know, sites couldn't handle the traffic. Right. Which turned into the fireball effect. Sites were fireballed because they're running, uh, WordPress without the super cache or whatever it is enabled, right? And then they, right. which they doesn't really over. seem to happen as much anymore. It seems, yeah, either the software has gotten smarter, so software been up. I mean, more people are doing hosted WordPress too, as opposed to self-hosting. I imagine so there's less likelihood. But I also think servers' capabilities have increased. You know, the baseline has gone so up so much further that I suspect it's harder. I also think this is the thing that's I, again I find hard to remember is back when you launched during Fireball, there were not five thousand gadget sites, five thousand Macintosh sites. Um, or a, a million. Um, when I launched the Wi-Fi site, I get some credit as being a very early journalist who launched a regular tech blogging site. And I wasn't alone then. And then uh, and Gadget or Gizmodo rather started not very long after that, within a year or two, I think. And they were really the only daily serious resource oriented um, gadget blogging sites. There were a handful of sites that got a lot of the traffic. And back then, um, my friend uh, Dave Sifri had founded Technorati and was in charge of that for a few years. And Technorati was looking at this sort of flow of blog love. Like he measured the link influence from and the authority granted by sites pointing to sites. And it was kind of a, a way to say, here's what the power law curve looks like, a famous essay that Clay Shirky wrote back then too about how this isn't a leveling influence. People who get a lot of traffic tend to get more traffic because people point to them and more people point to them as more people point to them. And it seems like you certainly benefited from the power law curve by being early, getting some attention and then writing consistently and regularly. It seems like your traffic then started to build because you were already on the radar. More and more people kept pointing to you and you kept, it wasn't breaking news necessarily, but you had a regular stream of information that would have been hard to find elsewhere or the insight you had. You're not finding that on 500 other sites. Right. Well, and I've never been into breaking news. I mean, it's all I've always like, again, like the analogy to traditional newspapers or magazines is that I'm I've always wanted to be the back page columnist right? You know, more than the front page. Here's the big story, you know, the big news story of the month, um, you know, and that goes all the way back to when I was in college at the school newspaper at Drexel, where I my I spent my time writing the op-ed page, you know, something for the op-ed page, not for the front page. I was at the time, you know, while I was working my way up and then after I left and I was still friends with the younger people who took over after I graduated, I was the only person in, you know, five, six years that I was familiar with the Drexel newspaper who became the editor in chief, not through the news team, you know, the front page, front two, three pages of campus news which is where the editors always came from. Uh, I came up only through the op-ed page and then sort of through the sports page too. But you like analysis. I, I just had no interest in that. And, yeah. You know, right. I wanted to write with personality. I wanted to write with, yeah, analysis and humor and, and stuff like that. Yeah, and I mean, I'll, I'm going to read off some stats from your site. You can tell me if they're current. It's the, uh, you know, you have 400,000 uh, 
during Fireball feed subscribers alone, the RSS feed estimated 4 million monthly web page views. You sell out sponsorships. The talk show has high paid sponsors as well. Um, people can do the math about the amount of money that comes in from these different sources based on things like the DEX advertising rate and so forth. But it seems to me you have a, a wonderfully sustainable model that lets you do this. So the financial side, it seems like, you know, a really good thing, but, you know, and you can do it. How many people can still pull this off? It's, you know, especially you're a one person show essentially with help on the back end from like the deck for advertising and so forth. But that was always, I shouldn't say that was always, but that was once a promise that there's going to be a lot of people who can do something like what you're doing, although maybe not at the same monetary level. Did that pan out? Do you see other people being able to sustain it? I feel like we've gone kind of institutional. Yeah, I, I, I'm a little surprised by that. And in fact, um, I was just like two weeks ago, I was in New Zealand for the Webstock conference. And, and one of my, one of the fellow speakers at the conference this year was, was Jason Kotke, mm -hmm. uh, who started his site and is doing the same, you know, one, one man show thing a few years before I did. I think he's, I think he started in 99 or 98 or something like that. Um, but didn't go, didn't start making money from it until, you know, a few years later, you know, both of us did it for years without making a penny in revenue. Um, cause you're, because there wasn't, there was no way. I mean, nobody, nobody with blog, there, there weren't, there weren't even Google ads until 2004, but I always had it in the back of my head from when I started. I didn't know how I just thought maybe if I, if it gets popular, there ought to be a way to make a, a living from it. You know, if it's, if it's, if it gets popular, there should be some way to do it. I'll figure it out when it comes. Don't worry about it now. Just make something good. And you've never been focused on the numbers from what I can tell and all of our conversations no, over the years. I mean, even from the beginning, it felt like you wrote what you cared about. And, uh, it's, you know, there's this, that theory about like the reason there's life in the universe is we live in it. So it's kind of a, you know, we have a bias because we're here and we're conscious already and thinking about it and that there may be many other universes in which there's no life or whatever. It's sort of self-selected. There's this thing to me that is, uh, the reason you're successful in one sense is that it happened that what you wrote about, and not to lessen anything you do, but what you wrote about resonated with enough people and continues to resonate that you get this effect of a mass audience. And people who wrote about other things, maybe as genuinely as you did, didn't have that overlap with an audience that actually cared enough about it to read it or people who thought the same way as they did. So the, let's say the confirmation bias is that you're successful in this and you reached an audience because they're it wasn't that you were trying to tailor what you did to them. You were fortunate in that what you like to say has a high correlation with what people are interested in reading. I, I, that, I would agree with that. Cause you never, you don't change what you say. I mean, you're, you know, good God, John, you never change. No, but I mean, you're not, you're not a, uh, well, as people took me to task for this. And so I'm going to apologize because I'm going to change my opinion, you know, and you see that on some sites. You see, we've, there were some publicized things recently where some people, you know, on one, um, one tech site made a bunch of statements probably unsupported and then really walked back from them. And maybe the article shouldn't have been published. You know, you'll, which one was that? Oh God, I'm trying to remember. It's happened. Well, maybe it happened so often. It was, uh, was it the HP? The Verge did something with HP. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like yeah. three things I can think of right off. But the thing is, not only are you your own man and you don't, and, and family man and so forth, you don't, aren't responsible to a boss. There's no one who's your boss and the deck isn't your boss and your ad network right. so forth. We talked to Jim Coodle not long ago. He talked about the deck trying to find essentially independent voices and it all works out. But you're not responsible to someone writing a paycheck to you. So you can say what you want, but it's also, and, and you do apologize. You've said, you know, if something's wrong, you'll say, I got this 
it's wrong. Right. And you'll confess, people are regularly, uh, you get this all the time, I know, is people say, John Gruber never admits he's wrong, never goes back, never publishes claim chowder on himself. And I'll say, I'm just going to do a quick search. I'm going to show you the number of times John said, I was wrong about this. I got this wrong. Look what I said two years ago. Boy, yeah. was that incorrect. So, but it feels to me that you don't kowtow as opposed to correct yourself if you're wrong. I, I, I agree with that, but I, I think I've been at least fortunate so far that I've never made a truly <laughs> colossal error. I, I, my, my, my stance on that is twofold. Is one, I do have a, it's one of my primary obsessions is with trying to be right about everything all the time, almost obsessively. Right. And that being wrong to me is, is, it's horrible. I, I would hate to be wrong about something. Even just an offhand guess as to how, whether something is going to be successful or popular in the future, I, I hate to be wrong. But also, right behind that is, if I am wrong, get on top of it. And then all of a sudden, you're right. Because that's the way, you know, and I've said this before, there is a way to be right all the time. And that is, oh, man, that's right. that, that is to recognize when you're wrong. And figure out exactly how you were wrong and say so. And now all of a sudden you're right. So you weren't, you, nobody is right as they go all the time, but at least in the, the track record you leave behind, you can be right all the time. And you certainly see this, you, you know, and, and it seems like so many other people who, who, if we broadly qualify as pundits, let's say, uh, seem to have this other mindset, which is to never acknowledge when they were wrong. And you see it in, in national affairs and, and politics, you know, in, in the pundit class all the time is, you know, people who were famously, let's just pick a huge colossal blunder is, is the, uh, U.S. war in Iraq. Right. And, and things like that, that, that provably are wrong. Like you can maybe get into some kind of argument about whether in the grand scheme of things, this really was the best thing to do, even if it didn't work as you did. But there's things like political columnists who, who just on the record said, this is going to take three months and a billion dollars. <laughs> welcome us as liberators. Right. And, you know, and it took 12 years and trillions of dollars. I mean, they weren't just off, you know, I mean, were, you know, there were cost estimates at the beginning in the single billions. And it ended up costing trillions, which is an error and thousands of times wrong. And massive, truly massive amounts of, of money that, you know, it, it, you could just easily make the connection that all of these financial problems that the entire world is under right now in terms of the global economy, really, I think you can attribute to that, the, the trillions of dollars the U.S. squandered over there. Um, but the pundits can't admit they're wrong. They don't wrong. admit it. They, and they, the they, same people, you know, and yeah, and the same ones but it's, it's who, who ego, were wrong about that never admitted it. It's never egotism. Got on top. But it's a combination of egotism and, and accountability, right? Is I, I come back to that is you work for yourself or you work for your readers, let's say, but you are putting work out there and by getting enough readers for it and not, you know, soliciting readers, you have revenue that's coming in that's not tied to your ability to always sound right, you know, and the pundits, once they start admitting that there's a crack in their facade, maybe they don't get on TV anymore. Maybe they're books that don't sell anymore. Maybe they lose their base. I mean, we've seen pundits who try to change their stripes. They actually say, you know, this is more nuanced. And in fact, uh, look at David Frum, for instance, and his, he's still arch conservative, but he's moved completely away from the Republican party. And he's trying I, to, he is one of my favorites. I love David. Frum. I, know, always, I am, I am politically <laughs> left. I'm at least in the U S scheme of things. I think in the global scheme, of things i'm very very moderate yes 
but you know, it, it more or less most social issues, I'm very liberal. I feel everybody should just be left alone. And Which is actually, and that's a conservative standpoint too. At some level, there's a conservative. Well, it's like a lowercase c conservative, yeah, conservative exactly. standpoint, that, right? right? It's lowercase c conservative. And that's where he you know? comes in. As David Frum was, you know, he was a pretty arch. He was, he was in the Republican Party. He wasn't a, a bag man, but he did. You know, he was part of that system, and slowly he moved further and further out of it, still embracing these he, true he conservative coined, principles. He coined famously, you know, probably going to go on his tombstone, but he coined the axis of evil or not axis of what was it the, the thing where wasn't it the axis of evil iraq iran and north, north korea? korea yeah that was yeah, yeah yeah and that's a david Frum speech he was a speechwriter for bush but yeah i love david Frum now because and i've always enjoyed reading even though i'm politically left always enjoyed reading the most thoughtful of the conservative columnists and pundits the the you know republican ones uh, years ago, you, you know, George Will was a favorite, although I feel he's sort of faded. But at least he's he's not just a knee jerk, like you said, like a guy who's in the bag. He's not a, you know, he's thoughtful, you know. And I've always enjoyed reading the other side. I think that the worst thing you can do is only read things that that you are prone to agree with. Frum's move to this position, though, I think that that that's allowed him to do this. Is he is still now? He is not as much of a talking head as he used to be, but he took control of his own. What he wanted to say, it was unpopular. Yep. He got fired from all these places that wouldn't, won't run him anymore. But then he's got books. He's been rebuilding his career around the notion that he's the guy who speaks the truth and talks to this group of people who are lowercase c conservatives who found their party – they think their party left without them. And not to make too big a connection there, but I think that's, for me, the the strongest voices on the web. The one I want to read are the ones that aren't beholden – not just to vested interests or advertisers or what have you, but who are willing to talk from a position in which there's no way they're getting fired. You know, there's, there's nobody, the only people they're pandering to are themselves. If they're watering down opinions or doing something to get page views or whatever, that's their own problem. The sites that do that. Um, you know, I think there's been a big trend, which I think you've seen as well, because I know, um, you like Brian Lamb's wire cutter site, as do I. And, Wirecutter, you know, comes from a guy who was one of the people who was running uh, Gizmodo from years. And, you know, you Gizmodo and Engadget and then a million other tech uh, or gadget blogging sites that were just – their idea was to push out like hundreds of posts a day and just be these machines. And the guys behind them, some of the early people like Pete Rojas and Brian and now some other folks, Josh Topolsky, they all moved to sites that to a varying level are calmer and quieter and instead of – trying to churn for page views and making everyone work these crazy schedules. They're trying to do something more deliberate, interesting, and unique. And I, I, I feel like through this trend. Brian Lamb is really a really interesting one, though, because he really went from the one extreme to the other, where Gizmodo is more than just a different version of Engadget. Mm -hmm. The thing with Gizmodo is that it's a gawker site, and so they – it's not just the quantity, but the sort of purposeful – yellow as yellow headlines, you know, this sort of deliberate jackass style of if we write it this way, if we take this angle on this story, we're overplaying our hand. We're going to since we're airing far on the side of sensationalism, but it's going to get a lot of clicks, right? We're going to play this in a way that deliberately steals attention because it's so over the top in the way that we interpret it. Right. You know, that if it's something a little bad, we're going to say it's horrible. If it's, if it's really bad, we're going to say it's the worst thing ever. If it's kind of good, we're going to say it's so great that it's going to doom this other company. You know, we're going to take that angle on everything. And I think, you know, 
so it's not just the quantity that I think wore Brian down. And he's, you know, he's been upfront about this, like in his great interview with, uh, I think David Carr at the yeah. New York Times about wire cutter. So, and then he's taken it in truly the extreme other scenario where it's understated and underplayed. And, you know, instead of covering every single laptop that comes out, they just cover three. They have like, they, they say, here's three laptops. Here's the best one. Here's the best one that's lower priced, and here's the best one that's really lightweight. Yeah, it's not the noise. So do you want the best? Do you want the best laptop? Do you want the best light laptop, or do you want the best laptop that's under six hundred dollars? Yeah, and it's not all that. It's not that noise. And I, I feel like I've been watching um, sites disappear. There are sites that I used to go to. Uh, Boy Genius Report got terrible when I, I think it got sold a few years ago. But it used to be a place where if you actually wanted advanced news on cell phones, you could go there, and they were fairly reliable um, on certain brands and certain things that were coming out of China and Taiwan. You could get information, and it was it was useful. But I feel like on the whole, the uh, it's a giant echo chamber now in a way that it used to not quite be. Everything is five levels of link away from the original source, the information isn't that useful. And I have to think that the money being generated there is a fraction of what it used to be, even for some of the bigger sites, because you're starting to see changes. Things are slowing down, becoming deliberate, and stuff's shuddering. We're, we're seeing sites disappear. And so you get the last laugh. Well, not the last laugh, but you get 10, to 10 years in, your approach of doing a, a deliberate thinking pieces that that take time to write that I think is becoming slightly more normative on the, on the, on the whole. I hope so. Um, but I do think, and I think this, this, this comes back to your earlier question about why aren't more people doing the one man show type operations. And, and Kaki and I talked about this at Webstock and we both had the thought, I, not quite 10 years ago when I got started, but let's say five, six, seven years ago, 2005 or so, 2006, like when I first started to think like, hey, I think this could work into a business that generates enough money to support my family, right? right? Um, that I thought this is the future, right? And I, I was proud that I felt like I was one of the trailblazers, but I really thought there'd be a lot more who followed and it doesn't seem to have worked out that way. Is it co-opting by the bigger media publications? Have they, well, that's what I, that's what I think has happened is that as blogs have become more accepted and more established as a, a, an accepted form of establishment media that bigger publications have, taken to hiring people to write. And so when people, before people would have somebody who might otherwise have been able to go independent on their own as a one person or let's say two person publication at the point, you know, where they have to just do it for a while, just get, you know, it's just, just work, just post. Right. And then at some point they get sucked up and hired into a bigger publication because the money is there and they're going to, you know, they're, and I'm not even saying it's a mistake to say yes to it. You know, who knows what I would have done in 2004 if somebody had offered to hire me. Right. Yeah, what if because, Macworld had had like the Macworld blog opinion, it would be the back page of Macworld right. online that and said, John, write about interesting things here and we'll give you a salary. Right. Because at the time I, what I really wanted to do is spend more time on the site. And I still, it was still a thing I had to do in the hours other than when I was doing the work that actually supported my family and the money. And there was literally zero revenue from Daring Fireball for two or three years. None, not a, not a single penny. You had an, inf- uh, you had an inflection point, right? Cause you hit a point where you said you start, well, I'm sorry, tell me that part because you started down the path to try to, to, to bring in funds with, uh, was it t-shirts first? 
I forget what I tried first. But you you um, started down. You weren't saying like I, mean, I, I was in that same milieu, like two thousand five, two thousand six. As you talk about it, Google Ads uh, started up was two thousand seven, I think, or two thousand. No, I think it was two thousand. I think it was earlier than that. I think it was 2004. I'll put it in the show notes because I, st- I signed up with Google Ads. I had this great thing, which was Boing Boing started working with uh, John Battelle, who then founded Federated Media. And after he started, founded Federated Media, I talked to him about my Wi-Fi site right away. I was an early site with, with uh, Federated Media. And Google Ads started around the same time. So I had this wonderful halcyon period where the Wi-Fi site was bringing in something like thirty dollars to $50,000 a year from a combination of Google Ads and, uh, and banner ads from Federated Media. It didn't last long, but it was right in that like 2004 to 2007 period. I hired a part-time writer to work with me to keep the content up while I worked on other things, and uh, it seemed for a brief shining moment that that might be a model for everyone to pursue. Right in that period is when you started bringing in revenue as well. Right. Well, I, I tried, I didn't know what was going to work, and I, you know, it's, and and often my personality is such that if I don't know if it's going to work, i I do nothing. And I'm glad I didn't, you know, I'm glad I actually did the sort of scientific method of, well, let's start trying things and see which of them work. And if, you know, whichever one works, stick with it, uh, which is sort of against my personality, but I'm, I'm, if I hadn't done it, I wouldn't, you know, I don't know what I'd be doing now. Not, you know, because my first idea didn't work. You'd be a um, staffer at Gizmodo. No problem. Uh, so let's not. see. Let me run through the things that I tried. For yeah. one thing is I was one of the first people to sign up for the Google. I don't even know if they called it AdSense at the time, but it's text ads. Yeah. And one of the reasons I signed up, things that I wasn't ever going to do. I wasn't going to do banner ads. And I've always objected to the entire page view model of advertising. I mean, I, wouldn't, I can't say that I, there's no way that I would have ever done it, but it, page, going to page view ads would have been the last resort. That would have been after I'd literally tried every other way of making money from my site that I could think of. And if I still couldn't support myself on the income, then I guess page views would have been it. But I really am opposed to it because I feel like it, it's, it's terrible for everybody. Jim Kudal and I talked about this on, on my show last week, but I think it's bad for everybody involved. I think advertisers get screwed because they're being charged not by how many people see their ad, but by how many times pages are loaded, which is crap. And that's why people do these stupid slideshows where they'll say, here's uh, the 20 best photos of 2013. And instead of showing them all on one page, so you just scroll down and see them all, it's 20 different pages. So they get 20 different impressions and they charge the advertiser 20 times, even though you're just one person who should have just been charged, you know, you should have, you should count as one and they're charging them 20 times. We talked about about, the visitor because you have to click 20 times and it's bad for you, the site publication, because the publications don't want to split this stuff up. So it's a horrible model. Didn't want to do it. We talked, yeah, and if you, uh, there's a, a podcast uh, with Jim Kudal that you referenced on your site. Uh, we did a few weeks ago in which Jim explained the, the deck model, and I'll link to that right. in the show notes. Because right, his idea was let's always have the network sold out. You're not trying to push to fill empty right. impressions. You keep right. growing the costs and the network just slowly enough that the network's always full and the ads always run. And there's right. not a so page if I do yeah. if I do four million page views average a month, you know, which is it fluctuates, but that's you know it's still roughly about what I do. But you know, let me look. I'm looking at my stats right now. Back in October and September, I don't even know why, but it jumped to uh, September and October. I did five and a half million both of those months. I don't know what it was. I guess it's because that's when the iPad and the iPhones came out, right. and so people were reloading the site more often. But I don't think I had more 
readers. You know, I think it was readers who were reloading the page more often. So I didn't, you know, the deck didn't pay me anymore for those months where my traffic went up. What is that? Like 20, 30%. So I had 30% blow up for those two months, but I didn't make any more money from my ads. And I don't think I should have, because I don't think my readership went up. I think it was just, it just happened to be people reloading more often. Um, so I, the first thing I tried advertising wise was the original Google text ads and they're, you know, keyed against the, uh, um, the text of the page and you only get paid when people click on them. Uh, and the funny thing is it's, I've told this story before, but it's so funny is I did it and I, I did it in an article where I, it, it was just putting ads on a blog was so weird and almost controversial, maybe not even almost, maybe just truly controversial that you everybody who did it kind of felt like they had to explain themselves. Yeah. And, and I wrote an article, I think this was the one where the headline was independent days. And I think it was right around July. So it kind of fit with us independence day about, look, I don't know if this is going to work, but I'm, you know, it's, it's, let me speak out here, you know, from behind the curtain for a moment and just tell you that I'd like to make this site a full-time endeavor. I don't know how, here's my first attempt, these ads. And I started, with this story about my design days when I was a designer and a, uh, this great article in the Philadelphia daily news from back in the nineties. And I don't, I never been able to find it. I don't think it's online because it predates their website. It was because it was like the early nineties, but it, the gist of the story was, um, and the Philadelphia daily news is the tabloid paper here in Philadelphia. Uh, it has a great personality. It was about why, why do men's hair pieces look so bad? Why does it, you know, <laughs> And they talked to the, the top hair restoration people, you know, people who do custom uh, hair pieces in Philadelphia. And the gist of the story is that if you're bald, it's easy to make a hair piece, not easy, but possible to make a hair piece that makes it look like you're less bald. And if you're kind of bald, you can make a good hair piece that looks like you're just a little bit less bald than you really are. <laughs> but they're all very expensive. And when people get paid, have to pay a lot for a hair piece, they expect a lot of hair. And so they, you know, the client ends up demanding something that makes it look like they have a complete head full of hair and it's impossible to make that look realistic. You know, and like the gold standard that they held up was like Bruce Willis who, who wore a hair piece for most of his film career. Oh yeah. Um, but never made it look like he wasn't balding. It just made it look like he was less bald than he actually was. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and my analogy to that was to design and that when you do design, Good design, like a good website, is going to cost you a lot of money compared to something from less people. But when people get charged for a, a lot, they expect a lot of design back. And so that's why minimalism is so rare in the designs of a lot of sites. Oh, yeah. Right? That's my analogy. It's the same thing with the hair. That people, If you're going to have to charge a lot, they expect to see a lot, even if the best thing would be not like you know, something a little bit more minimal. And that's why it was so luxurious for me to make daring fireball the way I want it to look very minimal, just the text because I didn't have to answer it. Anybody. Let's take a break from the podcast to thank one of our sponsors. Launch center pro lets you link to frequently used features nestled inside iOS apps with just two taps. You can organize common contacts, your most used apps and shortcuts all in one place. And the more you learn about the app, the more you can customize and extend how it helps your productivity. Is there a Wolfram Alpha calculation you perform all the time, or do you want a simple way to search Wikipedia using the text from the clipboard? Launch Center Pro does it. Version 1.1, just out, allows you to create canned messages and send them to a group in a single tap, as well as letting you act on the last picture you took. 
To make the best use of Launch Center Pro, put it in your iOS dock so it's available on every screen. Visit appcubby.com, A-P-P-C-U-B-B-Y, for a demonstration video or search for Launch Center in the App Store. You'll find a link on the episode page, too. Thank you, AppCubby. Now, let's return to the interview. Right. And you remember at that time, I mean, it was around that time, I mean, all the portal, well, the portals had sort of passed by a little bit, but every site that had advertising that was trying to maximize it, there'd be you could, the content, and you still have that joke a little bit, the content is like this postage-sized square in the middle surrounded by ads. I mean, actually, I shouldn't yeah. joke. There are sites, tons of sites like that. Even Snopes.com drives me crazy by debunking myths and having being covered with ads oh, that are essentially yeah. for nearly fraudulent products. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you're like, it's, but it's just, you know, Where's the, you know, there's this tiny strip of text and your site is, you know, it flips it all around. There's a tiny sponsored ad and one on the corner and everything else is designed around text. And that's been your philosophy from that point when you chose to use Google's, you know, nascent. Well, here's the funny thing about that article. The funny thing about that article then is that I got text ads for men's hair replacement (laughs) stuff. And it ends up that at least at that time, those were extremely high pay per click ads. They were paying over a dollar a click. And because it was the first article that I had with these ads and everybody sort of knew from the coverage of Google's now new thing that it's a thing that you get paid when they click. And I even wrote in the article, don't click ads just to click them because, you know, you know, Google said, you know, that's that's, you know, um, you know, against the rules, you're not supposed to encourage people to just mindlessly click the ads. I was like, just look at them. And if it is interesting to you, you know, follow it. And I, you know, I'll only if it's interesting, but if it is, I appreciate, you know, you giving your attention to that. Um, but people click these hair things anyway, just because they wanted to help me out. Right. And so I ended up making not a ton, but it, you know, I, I think, I don't know, maybe like a thousand dollars that first month. Yeah. My, not, fir- my first not, month, I got $3,000 from Google AdSense on my Wi-Fi site the first month. And I said, this is just the beginning. And of course it wasn't. That was, yeah, that was the I high a, point. I had a bad feeling right <laughs> yeah, from the start you were, though, because you were that thousand dollars was all from these hair replacement yeah. ads on this one article, which was not the right ads right. for for my site and that all the other articles and you know, the Google of course gives you pretty good analytics into what's going on. The stuff that was like Mac related was like, I don't know, $30. Do you remember at that time too? That's when you saw these uh, sites cropping up talking about uh, uh, mesothelioma, right? The uh, asbestos uh, potentially caused right. uh, inhaled asbestos cancer yeah, because terrible. these were those like $60 clicks. So everyone right. suddenly had a mesothelioma site. Matt Howie did really well, though, with his PVR blog. Yes, yeah, per- because personal the, video recorder blog, yeah. Right, because the TiVo-type stuff, those were high-cost-per-click ads, and they were actually on target for his audience. It actually was like a win-win-win scenario. For me, it was where, people selling Wi-Fi gear, so of course, right. it's all right. You know, they're selling, a hundred. well, then, like a couple hundred dollar item, they're happy to pay 50 cents a click to get That's someone a, through. A, another perfect example where it really was win-win-win. Was the line. advertisers yeah. were getting people looking for what they were actually selling. The readers were getting ads that were actually might be of interest to them, and you were able to just write what you wanted to write about and get ad, you know ads that were appropriate for your audience. But it did not work out for me, mm-hmm. so I I abandoned Google the AdSense stuff really quickly. I never really liked the way it looked either, I, and I've always thought it was sort of beneath the Daring Fireball brand. So it I got rid fit, of that. Quickly. Yeah, it doesn't fit with what you were. I mean, it doesn't fit with your aesthetic or your approach too. Right. Uh, and it's because your, your approach has always been less commercial. When I was writing about Wi-Fi, there was so much. 
commercial company news was more like a news site. And I occasionally broke news, but it, it was – my site was much more like an editorial site that we run by a magazine, an IDG publication or something like that. And Daring Fireball is a site with essays and links. Right. More so. so the next the next thing I tried, and this worked pretty well. It didn't was not nowhere near enough to let me go full time, but enough to actually say this is this is a justifiable hobby. Was selling more or less something like a deck ad, but without the graphic, just a like a uh, hundred character or fewer text link that went in the sidebar one per week, and it would stay up for the whole week. And I sold those for like a few hundred dollars a, a week. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a few hundred dollars a week felt like, hey, this is, you know, that's, that's what I would, it's probably what I'd be getting if I were doing this freelance, you know, it's, it, you know, again, not enough to support a family, but it was enough, it was certainly more than I was making from the Google ads and probably more than I would have made from CPM ads because I don't do a, a lot of page views. And then that eventually, but it, eventually that just rolled over and I switched from doing that myself to just being in the deck and letting Jim Kudal do the sales because he's a hell of a lot better salesman than me. Um, you also sell a lot of t-shirts or you used to, right? When you were at the beginning, is that still, yeah. a, vi- that's still a viable hunk of what you do? No, it's, it's definitely a, a big, you know, uh, you know, the, it's a big, a major leg on the Daring Fireball revenue stool. It's hilarious. Um, Do you remember when Stephen Johnson showed up in the New York Times with wearing a diary, just out of nowhere, wearing a Daring Fireball shirt in the shot they used for one of his books a few years ago? Yeah, I forget exactly when I started doing the T-shirts. I think it was when I first went full time uh, in 2006. Was it? Were you asking I mean, for? Were you asking for memberships in that first go round? Yeah, I remember you were trying to get people still, to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, let me explain it. I, I, hopefully, as briefly as I can. I know we're, <laughs> we're going long here, but. That's right. This is my next idea. It was direct support from readers instead of advertising and see if that can do it. And I, I forget if Kotke tried it first or not. He might have. I, I, I know we'd at least talked about it with each other for years. We both had talked about it together then. Kotke did a thing where he went full-time for a year completely based on contributions from yeah. his readers. And I didn't quite do the same thing. But my thought was, you know, at, tell people this is what I want to try. And and for $19 a year, you could become a member. And I'll try to think of some cool members only things. And you can also become a member for $29. Uh, you'll get the membership and you'll get a t-shirt. And that, you know, I know it's a lot for a t-shirt, but it's, you know, this isn't just to get the name out there. This is to help, you know, try to do this thing full time. And because the idea I had in my head at 2006 was the, the revenue from the site was let's say roughly a third of the salary I was making from the company I worked for at the time joint. Um, so a third on top of my salary was great because it was like, I was making 133% of my salary, right. but quitting the job would have been untenable because 33% of my salary <laughs> alone was not enough to support my family. Right. Um, but my wife and I had talked this over. My wife was very, very supportive of it and knew that it was killing me because I was obsessed. And I, you know, honestly, I wasn't doing a good, as good a job as I should have as an employee at Joint because so much of my mind was occupied by Daring Fireball. And I had this idea that just basically, bottom line, I'm never the revenue from Daring Fireball is never going to get there to a full time level until I'm already putting full time effort into it. That you've got to make this sort of blind faith jump and do it. And then you, traffic will increase and attention will increase and, and you'll be able to, you know, then the money will come. And the thing that, you know, it was almost like a slap in the face, you know, like, duh, just do it. Right. Because what was the worst case scenario? If it didn't work out, 
it's not like I would be unemployable. It's not like having done Daring Fireball full time for a, a year or nine months was going to make me unable to get another job. I mean, I knew that at least Daring Fireball was popular enough that it would actually probably be pretty easy for me to get it, at least some sort of job if I really needed to, because I had some modicum of fame, right? It's a lot easier to get a job if people know who you are already. Yeah, this is, you know, I was talking so to... So why be so afraid of trying? I was talking to so Dalton Caldwell of app.net, just uh, should be the previous podcast in this sequence. And that's when they um, were switching their model and wanted to launch the, you know, microblogging part of what they were doing uh, in middle of 2012. That's why they did their crowdfunding thing. They're like, look, you know, we need to know there's interest. We need, the money is useful because it helps run the business. But if they can't get people to pony up that small amount of money in that large quantity, there's no no reason to do it. You know, it, yeah. it answers a question. I, I think of, of, of crowdfunding Kickstarter, you know, in specific crowdfunding in general. And what you did, it was, you know, a sort of a form of crowdfunding in, in, in a different, a different yeah. way. But it's kind of the same thing. A lot of people are going to give you, or, you know, a few people are going to give you a lot of money or a lot of people give you a little money yeah. is cr- crowdfunding gives you the answer to the question, you know, is this financially sustainable? Do people care enough about what I'm doing to give me money for inchoate future reasons for something I haven't done yet to reward me for the past? And that's how yeah. tidbits added memberships that we talked yeah. about in a previous episode with the Yanks is it was, we know what we've been doing for 20 something years. Is this valuable enough for people to say, I want to support this prospectively. What you're going to do in the future is worth enough to me because of what you did in the past. And, and you pulled that, that same out, uh, that same model out at a time when I think that was less typical. I, and well, I'll tell you the biggest reluctance I had to try it was clearly that was the fact that if it didn't work out, it would be a failure, a very public failure. Mm-hmm. That if nine months later, after saying, "Look, I'm trying to, I'm now doing this full time," but I did it in a way, and I said, "Look, I'm doing it full time, but the revenue from the site is not there yet." So here's the first thing I'm going to do to try to get it there, which is to encourage you to become a member or buy a shirt. And it was successful enough that it, you know, I don't know, it brought in. I don't know, twenty or thirty thousand dollars in maybe profit, and uh, it was enough that it gave us this this pile of money that we could live on for the next few months. But it was like an airplane heading towards the ground, <laughs> where we're eating into the money. Yeah. But if the plane was leveling out, and it really got, it literally got very very close. Where we, you know, I don't think I ever had to ask for money. Maybe like one time I had to like borrow a couple hundred bucks from my dad to just make the nut for the month on the gas bill and phone bill. Mm-hmm. Um, like at, towards the end of that first year of doing daring fireball first time, but it really was like a plane that like was like bottoming out and maybe like a couple of spark shot as it hit the ground, but then came back up and started going up in the air. But it was truly only possible because of that initial, Look, I'm going to be very public about this. You know, here I am, hat in hand. If you guys can support me to get it started, I'll I'll make a go of it and see what happens. And if it hadn't been for that, I never would have because the advertising, the monthly advertising revenue at the time was nowhere near uh, our monthly living expenses. So this got you. This helped you bridge to. You're putting more time in because it's now a full time thing. You're able to have more time for deliberation and right? right. You know, I often talk to people about that. That there's the two things, right? There's productivity. You could produce more because you had more time. But there's also uh, reflection. Because you have more time, you could write things that were more analytic than you had time to. So even if it's you're producing one essay a week, that essay has the value of that many more hours that you've taken to tinker on it, to think about it, and produce something that's that's deeper and thus gets a better uptake from readers. 
Right. And the other big thing, too, is if something big does happen, something like, oh, I know John Gruber is going to have something to say about this. I will have time to say something about it. <laughs> right. Whereas every once in a while before, if it just coincided with a busy work week, I wouldn't, you know, and it would sort of kill me to get those emails like, hey, I thought you were going to comment on this. And it's like, I really want to, but I could, could not do it. I had a client or a, you know, a job thing that was, you know, had a deadline that had to come first and I didn't have time. You know, I want to circle back on something you said a little bit ago too, which is that, you know, if this hadn't worked out, certainly you had, you're a programmer, you're a writer, you're certainly employable and the economy was going well at that point. There were lots of jobs you could have taken without having to move too. And the, uh, the related notion that, um, the reason that there aren't necessarily as many Kotkeys or Grubers or Fleischmans for that matter doing like the Wi-Fi thing, there aren't people at these, um, what Dave Siffrey called um, at the Technorati days, he put out a chart once that was based on Chris Anderson's long tail and Kelly Shirky's power law curve. And it was, it showed, you know, Boing Boing and a few other blogs and then new entrants like Huffington Post even at the top of the curve in what he called the big, or what I think Chris calls too, the big head. And then there's a long tail where you have a million blogs and other live journal sites and whatever that were being read in the t tens or hundreds of page views or readers a day. But there's this thing called the magic middle that he termed, I've never seen the term really used widely since, but it was the segment of thousands to tens of thousands of sites that got sufficient traffic that there was enough conceivably to get ad revenue or other revenue to make them work. And what's happened over time is I think the big publications have cherry picked both people and concepts from that magic middle. And I look at my economist gig and without discussing pay, I, you know, I'm a freelancer. I write two items a week for the Babbage column and they make it worth my while. And that's a reliable source of income from a multi-billion dollar company <laughs> that's privately held, partly owned by Pearson. And, uh, they, it's in their interest to pay me and a bunch of other freelancers plus to devote staff time to produce several hundred blog items a week across their whole site. And they're devoting, you know, clearly that's hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of, uh, between staff time and actual cash payments to outsiders to make that happy, uh, happen. It's worth it to them. That money might have before been spread among dozens or hundreds of blogs from advertisers if they could have captured it, if those blogs could have captured it. And The Economist is but one of a number of media sites that pay people like Harry McCracken and so forth who've gotten sucked into some element or part of um, something like a blog, or it might be less chronological, it might be more like regular writing, but it's still the people like us who are more entrepreneurial. We now are like, I'd rather get a check from an organization that's going to distribute my words widely and I know they're going to be read than to fight every week to get you know the $100 of ad revenue or whatever it would be at this point. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely a factor, you know, and, you know, it's a big world and people can contribute. And certainly The Economist, you know, isn't even it's, you know, it's a it's an English publication. British, what would you call it? It's well, you know, I, never, I, have, I think half their subscribers are now in America. So it's fascinating. I know, but I never know when when do you say English and when to say British. I, I think I think it's I think it's an English publication. It's center. Right. It's headquartered in London. So but anyway, but it is <laughs> certainly international. Um, but at least here in the U.S., it, it, a tremendous factor at play, honestly, is is health. Healthcare coverage. Yes. Where, uh, you know, in your 20s or whatever, you, you maybe you can get by without it. And I certainly did for a long stretch. Um, but just the ridiculous way that we have that our healthcare system works and that you really it's not just that you need to most people need to get it from an employer, but that you really want to work it so that you never have a gap in coverage. Because those gaps, if anything ever happened to you catastrophic, you know, some sort of disease and the insurance company claims, well, clearly you, you know, 
you got cancer in that three week period where you didn't have health insurance. Therefore, <laughs> it's God. a pre existing. Well, that, I mean, I'm, I'm not even. I'm not, the, no, it, I know it, you're not joking. I had my wife had surgery once a few years right. ago, and we had an ins- we had continuous insurance. But in Washington State, if you switch from a a higher deductible to lower deductible plan, even with continuous insurance, you have a pre-existing condition exclusion, which was not explained to us by the agent, and we were almost on the hook for $50,000. Yeah. And in the yeah. end, the state yeah. attorney general intervened, and we got it resolved. But right. this is it, the kind of thing that Americans deal with. I mean, people listening know is not, all the time. It, right, and it is not like a, a concern that you're going to be hit by lightning type thing. It is a this – this, this is actually likely to happen. One to you, emergency you know? room visit. Right. right. So this will be interesting. In 2014, when the Amer- Affordable Care Act finally hits, assuming no other changes happen, and you'll be able to – when – you know, like we were in the 20s. I was lucky. In the 20s, I got this insurance that was incredibly cheap because I was referred to it and I was making enough money to pay this really cheap, catastrophic health care insurance. And it covered when I had cancer. It covered like – like 95% of the cost because there was a $6 a month cancer rider I'd happened to pay for, or I would have been devastated. But unbelievable. But so in the, you know, starting in 2014, either you'll be covered until 25 by your parents' policy, or you'll be able ostensibly as a young, healthy person, be able to buy a policy that's better than catastrophic if it's not quite as good as, you know, the super comprehensive ones that, that companies offer. Well, that, that could make a difference. Long story short, I do attribute part of the fact that, that, People like, you know, tend to take opportunities like that. Talented writers tend to take opportunities to join an established publication because, you know, of stuff like that. And, but maybe part of it too isn't even specifically related to healthcare, but it's just their temperament and that getting a job and having an employer and having a, a check come from somebody on a week, you know, a weekly basis. <laughs> it's, it is what they want. It's what they naturally, you know, seem hooked up to get. Whereas me, that's it. Never f- worked for me. And you never would like, have considered a paywall back. I mean, back when you switched and you went full time and were looking for uh, no. contributions, it didn't make any sense for. It doesn't make any sense today for you either, does it? No, because to me, it it's part of the brilliance of the opportunity of the internet as your distribution media that. Uh, my God, you don't have to lock people out. Right. You know, you don't have to ship paper to every city in America to get people in every city in America to be able to, to even have the chance to read your writing. So why in the world would you try to lock people out? Why would you discourage people from linking to your thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, never occurred to me. I'll tell you this long story short on the, on the, the, the money and, and, and this notion I just put, wrote this yesterday, but I've always had it in the back of my head to have strong ideas loosely held. Yes. Be very, very sure about what you're doing, but reevaluate everything and don't stay attached to something. So the membership system, the first thing I could think of with the membership system in 2006 that I could offer readers was full content RSS feeds because I didn't have them at the time. My full articles, um, my full articles only in the RSS feed only had like an excerpt. And then you would have to come to the site to finish reading it because I thought if I put the full content in the feed, how am I going to make money on that? I couldn't figure out a way to make money on it at all. Let, you know, I wanted people to come so that those little text ads I was selling on the site, that one a week text ad would get some eyeballs. And so when I went to the membership system, I programmed up a thing where everybody got a custom key, a little eight character random string. And when you put that into the, this URL with this thing, if it was a legitimate thing, then you had a full content RSS feed. And I just asked people not to share it. And I, I think people were relatively honest, but it was too easy with various software, like RSS readers that, that, 
assume that feeds are public, it was too easy to Google for it. And so people were Googling for the free public feed and, and, you know, I'm not going to call it piracy, but, but non-members using the full content feed was, it, it grew to the point where it was something I had to think about. So I switched to username and password mm-hmm. where the username was your email address that you signed up for. And I thought, well, that will, that's enough of a discouragement that, you know, if you want to share your email address with your friend, <laughs> so, you know, right. like you, Glenn, want to share it with your friend, Adam. Well, I don't care. What do I care if one guy has paid for a membership, Ben has shared his email address and this password with two or three friends? I don't care because you trust them, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. But you're not going to publicize your email address. Um, and that worked really well in terms of like, for the most part, only members were reading the feed. Uh, and I thought that's good because now I'm making money from it. You have to pay for it. And it seemed fair, $19 a year and you get full content RSS feeds. Uh, but then came Google Reader. right? And Google Reader became the world's most popular RSS reader. But Google Reader is built at Google scale, and Google Reader didn't uh, support password-authenticated feeds. Right. So if you use Google Reader, you couldn't read my feed even if you paid for it. And I thought, well, this is a problem because this is clearly popular. These are my my readers. These are the people who are paying me. This is how they want to do it. I've got to make this happen. And so at first I thought, well, Google Reader is new. Surely they're going to hook up password support soon. And that was my standard answer, mm-hmm. is, that, is that hopefully Google Reader is going to support password soon. I'm really sorry in the meantime, but you know, I've definitely got my eye on it. You know, Let's see what happens. And it never happened. And months went by, and Google Reader still didn't have it. And I was fielding email about this every single day. And I thought about it from Google's perspective, and I realized, here's how Google works. Google works at Google scale. So Google, let's say there's 10,000 people reading Daring Fireball who use Google Reader. Google checks my feed once, and it says, oh, there's a new article. They've checked it once, and then they give that article to all 10,000 subscribers. That's the way Google works. It it's, makes complete sense. If they supported password authentication, they'd have to check my feed 10,000 times because they'd have to do it once. They couldn't assume that it was the same content. They wouldn't know that, you know, for all they know, it's a bank site, you know, that the password authentication is that it's personal information in there, Mm -hmm. right? If it's a password protected feed, it could be personal information. And in fact, I did have personal information in there. I programmed very cleverly. I thought when your subscription was up, uh, about a week in advance, I put an item in the RSS feed addressed to you personally saying, hey, your subscription's up in a week. I really hope you enjoy <laughs> Daring Fireball. Uh, you know, don't be freaked out that there's an article on Daring Fireball addressed to you personally. It's only in the feed. You know, I thought it was very clever. Um, but then I thought, you know what? Google Reader is never going to support passwords because it doesn't make sense for their product. And as soon as I thought that, I thought, now, that made me take this huge step backwards. And I thought, okay, let's go all the way back to step zero. How can I make money with the RSS feed? And then I thought, all right, I'll sell a sponsorship just for the feed. Once a week, same as my old idea, not the deck, not a graphic ad, but I'll sell a sponsorship, one sponsor a week to pay for the feed, and I'll make it public for everybody, whether they're a member or not. Public, full content of the site, all in the feed, one sponsor a week will pay for it. And it ended up, you know, it's now the single biggest source of revenue for the site. It's far, you know, far more profitable than even the deck ads are. It's a fascinating thing where you sell that for the site says $8,500 a week, which is, I mean, which is an amazing number, you know, and that number actually makes me want to, to pop up and talk about context. Cause I feel like sometimes what we've been talking about during the podcast is it makes it sound like nobody can do this. 
that you were the last person we bought. The bold was broken. Everyone's working for publications. There's no way to scale. But I think we're seeing a new renaissance of people leaping off. Like um, Sean Blanc is a good example. He's, I think, now one year into trying to go full-time with uh, with his writing, with his site. Uh, over from Read Write, uh, which used to be Read Write Web, John uh, Mitchell just left to launch his own thing. It's, you know, it's in dribs and drabs, but I'm seeing people, maybe because of payment mechanisms becoming easier to tie in, you know, micropayments, and, uh, and even I'd say the magazine at some level, Marco's Venture, that I'm editing uh, benefits from the fact that Apple, we could start with the Apple newsstand and get both the promotion and having them collect $1.99 a month. And then Marco, when he extended web subscriptions recently, he used Stripe, which is a very, you know, uh, very internet friendly, programmer friendly system uh, compared to something like even PayPal or any of the, the big uh, merchant bank systems. Do you see this as a, is it enough people to call it a trend that we're seeing people trying to go independent again? Or is it just a few people here and there that are prominent enough that I'm noticing it? I, I, I think it could be, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little surprised that it hasn't been more, it's not more of a common thing. Uh, and I'm still a little surprised by how much of the web is, is tries to support itself through pay, paper view, Mm -hmm. what do you call it? Page view. Uh, advertising. Like, I feel like the model that works better here, and to me, it's not, again, it's not really original. I mean, stuff being, having a sponsor, you know, one sponsor for like the entire week or something like that is, is you know, you go back to TV and radio, right? With the Texaco Theater or Texaco sponsored, you know, I don't know, Milton Berle's. I don't know if that's quite, <laughs> I don't know if they were Milton. But, you know, what I mean, like Milton Berle might have one sponsor and it was a big company like Texaco and they would just, you know, the show was supported by that instead of all these little mini 30 second commercials. You just say, hey, it's the Tex- Texaco presents this and, you know, gets the Texaco name out there, right? And I think that sort of advertising works and it's way better fit for independent producers. And I think the sponsors are starting to figure it out too because I'm seeing, I feel like I'm seeing more sites, parts of sites, uh, podcasts like ours and others where that's what's driving it is, uh, is somebody often again auteurs or companies with the focus to understand that they can brand themselves alongside something instead of trying to go for maybe or amorphous page views, they can both see the objectives from it as well as the branding goals by being, uh, by being sponsors and being more tied to what the publication is about as opposed to being an ad buy someplace. Right. And that's the way people's attention. I mean, attention is the thing that, that we're all chasing because that's the one thing that there's a limited amount of, right? You're only awake for so many hours and you've only got two eyes. So <laughs> attention is a limited resource, right? That's it's it's there's there's no way to you know it's it is a zero sum game where where we spend our attention and as time goes on we're as the internet develops we're spending our attention more and more on things that we specifically like ourselves right more TV shows that are different rather than three networks you know your choice of three shows at any given hour yeah, everything is right? exploding into pieces and as there's less monolithic entities that collect the majority of the ad revenue there's the opportunity for other entities to come in and collect small pieces. I've always had this phrase, something like scraping the tables off or scraping the crumbs off the table of e-commerce, you know, or rooting around in the cushions of e-commerce for change where everything I've done, I think I've want a slice of a slice of a slice of a slice. And that 
one thousandth of a percent or a hundred thousandth of a percent is enough to make a living from. Right. And I mean, I mean, the magazine, you know, Marco just revealed the numbers for the magazine to NPR. It's about 25,000 plus monthly subscribers paying a buck 99 each. And that lets us drive this whole thing. That's not a lot of people compared to a billion online and hundreds of millions of English speakers online and hundreds of millions of iOS device owners. And you've got an audience of millions, uh, hundreds of thousands of monthly readers, but even that hundreds of thousands versus the tens of millions going to a site like New York Times. And you're making a very fine living from the advertising that accrues and other relationships that accrue just for that sliver of the global audience that wants to read what you want to read. Right. And if you keep the team small, boy, it really, you know, yeah. People keep it asking works. me about that at the magazine. Like, how many of them are you? I'm like, we're all freelance. Like, that's the whole point. You know, I'm doing contracting. Marco's doing part of his time, even though he owns it. We hire people in and, and you, you're a solo shop, but you've got help. You have the deck doing ads for you. You've got Mule Radio and helping distribute the, uh, the talk show podcast. You've got other people who are all kind of like-minded, collaborative folks who are involved. But, you know, it's really you. And it does help that like me and you and Marco have a technical background, but you don't even need that anymore. I mean, in 2002, it really was almost necessary. But as of now with, you know, you, I mean, you could run a, a site like mine, a professional site like mine on Tumblr. Exactly. You absolutely could. And, you know, and something like, or, or if you wanted to pay and maybe have a little bit more control, something like Squarespace, who I, I should throw out there has sponsored, you know, my work probably sponsors this, <laughs> sponsors me. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't even know at the moment. Yeah. They have, they've been an active sponsor, right? There's, it's, but I do think you know, though, but I think the reason that they sponsor my site and, and mule shows is that the audience for my site and your show and my show, it really is squared up with the Squarespace audience of people who want to build things and, and do it. And, you know, it's more of like a Lego type thing than, you know, where you're snapping pieces together than doing your own injection molding. There, yeah, there's that. Plastic. And there's, there's even that issue of like Amazon S3, like things like Amazon S3 for even if you're not that technical, you can get software that lets you upload or automatically yep. transfer the stuff there. And it's like, I need to suddenly ship a terabyte of files today. There's going to be yep. a million people downloading something. I didn't expect it. Oh, your bill is a hundred dollars or whatever. Whatever. It's not $50,000 overnight. That kind of thing allows easy scale without having to be involved. All right, John, yeah. I have a final question for you. Okay. Final question. 10 years in, almost 11 years in, how do you keep inspiration going? How do you get up every day and do this thing you've devoted your life to that you've been successful at? You get encomiums for, you're deriving your income from. What is the thing that lets you get up every day and sit down at the keyboard and write something? I, I don't know. I have a compulsion to write. <laughs> You know, mm -hmm. the list of things that I want to write about that I feel like I really want, I want to write about that has always grown faster than my ability to write, scratch things off from them and get them written. Even devoting full time, even with nothing, you know, this is my only job. I can't write about everything that I want to write about, which I think is the way it should be because it sort of forces me to pick the best things to write about, hopefully, uh, the most interesting, the things I'm most obsessed with. So the fact that that list of things that I wish I could write about or had the time to link to, that it's I can't keep up with it. So that's, you know, to me, what 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 gets me going. That's good. That's I've been saying that from for over 10 years, whenever anyone said, how do I start a blog? How do I start a this or that? How do I get on Twitter, for instance? How do I become you know, active on Twitter? It's if something doesn't drive you uh, or the thing that you're doing isn't the thing that drives you, it's never going to work. That's a job. That's a job right. where you get a salary and you're doing somebody else's work and you happen to, I mean, if you like it or not, but you have to have that obsession you're talking about. You always have to have more things that you want to do than you're capable of doing and because otherwise you run out of steam. Yeah. 
I, I literally had, I don't know where it is, somewhere in my office. I don't know, maybe it'll be of interest in history, but there was a notebook I had in 2002 that I wrote, wrote like seven or eight articles, like ideas for, for things I could write about on Daring Fireball. And I thought, well, that's enough. Is that, <laughs> well, I didn't think yeah. that when I got to the yeah. end that I'd be done, yeah. but I thought, well, if I can already think of seven exactly. or eight things, by the time I get half of them done, I'll probably have more ideas, right? And I never, I'm quite certain that I never even got to all seven or eight of the original ones, that by the time I got three or four of them done, I'd already thought of two or three new ones that were seemed better than the ones that I still hadn't written. You know, and it, and that list has never, I mean, there's never, I don't really, I can't say that I have one list of ideas to things to write about, but that in back of my head in, you know, that list, I've never caught up literally from day one, never have never caught up to everything I want to write about. That's a beautiful thing. John, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for sharing Thank all this. Thank you. This is great. It's a lot of fun. Thank you. You've been listening to The New Disruptors, a podcast for and about creative people and the audiences they reach. We're part of the Mule Radio Syndicate. Visit muleradio.net slash new disruptors for the detailed show notes and links for this episode, as well as to listen to or download any previous episode. You can use our site to subscribe to the podcast via RSS or click a link to find us on iTunes, where you can rate and review the podcast. Click the contact link on our page or email newdisruptors at muleradio.net if you have compliments, complaints, or suggestions. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, drop us a line or visit sponsor.muleradio.net. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. <laughs>